Grace and peace to you, friends. Welcome to The Oak Tree Journeys. My name is Mandy Oaks, and this is the Encyclopedia Challenge. We are on Season 1, Episode 54, and wow, I just cannot believe it's been 54 episodes. That is just astounding. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you to my listeners who have been with me from the beginning. Thank you to my new listeners. If you are a new listener, you may be wondering, what is this? I just stumbled on this Encyclopedia Challenge. I don't get it. Well, that is a great thing to wonder and a great question to ask. What is the Encyclopedia Challenge? Well, the Encyclopedia Challenge is where I read the encyclopedia to you because who has time to read that? <laughs> uh, other than me, once a week. Uh, but I read from two different encyclopedias. I read from the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909, which is our main source. Then we have another source, which is the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And if you want to catch up on any of the podcasts, uh, please go to my website, theoaktreejourneys.com. It is in the description. And uh, you click on Encyclopedia Challenge, and you can go through all of the words. If you want to know how a word is spelled, uh, just go to that season and episode. Uh, we will be in Season 1 throughout the entire A's. Uh, and then Season 2, of course, will be the B's. So... It'll be the episode that you're looking for. So if you need to know how to spell a word, in this episode, it's it'll be E54. So E54, it'll be S1 forward slash E54 on the website. And then you could search the words that way. But I am so glad you're here. This is exciting. This is the last Sunday of February. I cannot believe it. It is the 27th of February. March is here. Yay! I love March. It's one of my favorite months. It's not my only favorite month, but it is one of my favorite months of the year. Love March. Uh, and not just because of spring, but because of another reason. And my family and friends know why, so shh, keep it to yourselves, family and friends. I wanted to give a shout out, speaking of family and friends, to Mary. Hey, Mary! Thank you for listening. And, uh, oh, we also have, before we begin, the uh, words... I have the quote of the month. This is the last day for this quote of the month. And then next month we'll have another quote. And if you have a quote that you would like me to feature, feel free to email me the quote uh, at mandyoaks at protonmail.com or go to my website, theoaktreejourneys.com and select contact and just fill out that contact form. Uh, but the, the quote of the month is by Martin Luther. Love is an image of God, and not a lifeless image, but the living essence of the divine nature which beams full of all goodness. So again, that is, love is an image of God, and not a lifeless image, but the living essence of the divine nature which beams full of all goodness. Now, let's go ahead and get into the entries, because that's what you're here for. You don't want to hear me babble on, which I do have a few things, uh, to tell you about, catch you up on, but we'll, we'll go through those a little later. Uh, so last week we ended with the word alliance. So we're going to begin with Alabone, comma, Samuel Austin, LLD. Then we have Alice, or Alice or Alice Shod. We have Allied Control Council for Germany, Allier, or I'm sorry, it's 
Allier, Allier, and then Allier again. So without further ado, let's go ahead and read about Alabone, comma, Samuel Austin, LLD. And for the first two entries, I will be reading from both the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 and then the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So for Samuel Austin, Alabone, LLD, let's start with the 1909 version. And he says he was a bibliographer, born 1816, April 17th, died 1889, September 2nd. He was born in Philadelphia. He is best known by his Critical Dictionary of English Literature in three volumes from 1858 to 1871, and then supporting two volumes edited by J.F. Kirk in 1891. The studies for the structure of this important work were made by Alabone during his leisure while actively engaged in mercantile business. It is remarkable for erudition and minute investigation. He edited the publications for the American Sunday School Union for several, several years, contributed to the North American Review and other periodicals, and published poetical quotations from Chaucer to Tennyson in 1873. Prose quotations from Socrates to Ma Macaulay in 1875, and great authors of all ages in 1879. In 1879, he became head librarian of the Lenox Library in New York and held the office until his death. So that's what the 1909 version has to say about him. So let's see what the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 says about him. And this one is a little longer, uh, but it says he was an American bibliographer and librarian, born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, April 17, 1816. He died in Lucerne, Switzerland, September 2nd, 1889. Now, I don't think they said where he died at in the 1909. Nope, they didn't. So he died in Switzerland in 1889. For a time, he engaged in mercantile pursuits in his native city. He is best known by his a Critical Dictionary of English Literature and British and American Authors, a monumental work published between 1858 and 1871 that cost him 20 years of labor. 20 years. And I thought my novel of eight years was an accomplishment, but he's 20 years of labor. Wow. It contains notices of 46,499 authors with extracts from reviews of their works and 40 classified indexes of subjects. This became an indispensable reference work for libraries and students. A supplement by John Foster Kirk appeared in two volumes in 1891. Alabone was book editor and corresponding secretary of the American Sunday School Union during 1867 to 1873, and again in 1877 to 1879. From 1879 until 1888, he served as librarian of the Lenox Library in New York City. Others of Alabone's works are indexes of Edward Everett's Orations and Speeches in 1859, an alphabetical index to the New Testament in 1868, explanatory questions on the Gospels and the Acts in 1869, poetical quotations from Chaucer to Tennyson, 1873, containing 13,600 passages from 550 authors, prose quotations from Socrates to Macaulay, in 1876, with indexes to 8,810 quotations and containing the names of 544 authors and 571 subjects, and then great authors of all ages selections in 1880. So we got a little bit more information from 
1956 version as opposed to the 1909. Okay, and our second entry is Alice or Alice Shod. So in the 1909 version, it says C Shod. So S H A D. That's all it says. That's why we have to go to the 1956 version where it says Alice or Alice Shod. A fish from Western Continental Europe, less common in the British Isles, the white shod, a black spotted form with the same range, occasionally becomes landlocked. See also shod, or maybe that's shad, Alice Shad. Okay, so for all of you fishermen out there, uh, if I'm pronouncing that wrong, I do apologize ahead of time. Okay, or, well, not ahead of time, <laughs> after the fact. And number three... Allied Control Council for Germany. And this is rather lengthy, but it is only in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956, and you will see why um, momentarily. Uh, it, it did not exist in 1909, and let's find out why. Or you could probably guess. The Allied Control Council, an organ composed of the three commanders-in-chief of the major Allied powers of World War II, Great Britain, the United States, and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics was established in anticipation of the defeat of the Third German Reich. Designed by the European Advisory Commission during the London talks of November 1944 and approved by the Chiefs of State at the Crimean Conference at Alta in February 1945, the ACC was invested with supreme governmental authority in Germany after the surrender. Specifically, it was charged with the organization of a joint inter-allied agency for the development of policy affecting the government of Germany as a whole with the coordination of policy to ensure uniformity of action in their respective zones of occupation and with the administration of Greater Ber Berlin through an inter-allied authority to be known as the Allied Kommandatur. On May 1, 1945, the Provisional Government of France was given a share in the occupation of Germany, and the Allied Control Council with its satellite agencies was adjusted accordingly. According to the European Advisory Commission, or EAC, agreement of November 14, 1944, all decisions of the Control Council were to be unanimous and binding on Germany as a whole. All matters not covered by Control Council decisions were left to the discretion of the commander-in-chief of the particular zone of occupation. On June 5, 1945, the Allied Control Council conducted its first formal meeting, which was held in Berlin and attended by Field Marshal Georgi Zukov, USSR, Field Marshal Sir Bernard Law, Montgomery, United Kingdom, General de Army J. de la Tour de Tuscany, France, and General of the Army Dwight D. Eisenhower, United States. On this historic occasion, the ACC signed the Declaration of the Defeat of Germany and issued a proclamation in which it assumed supreme authority in Germany in the name of the respective governments. This assumption of authority was formalized on August 2, 1945, when President Truman, Prime Minister Attlee, and Premier Joseph Stalin signed the Postem Agreement, which dissolved the European Advisory Commission and transferred its responsibilities to the ACC. At the same time, the powers and duties of the Allied Control Council were defined. In setting up the machinery needed to conduct its affairs, the Control Council followed the pattern laid down by the EAC in its London Agreement, which called for the organization of a permanently seated coordinating committee composed of the deputy military governors, a sec 
no. A secretariat to handle the routing of papers and 12 quadripartite committees or divisions to handle technical problems and act as a cabinet to the control council. This four-power governing body became known as the Allied Control Authority for Germany, while its Berlin counterpart, patterned in the same image, was then, as now, July 10, 1952, called the Allied Kommandatura. Problems of restoring communications within shattered Germany, feeding a hungry population, supplying fuel and power to revive an industrial empire on which the recovery of all Western Europe depended, were but a few of the vital problems with which the council had to consider. For the latter half of 1945 and the early months of 1946, a high degree of cooperation and accord was achieved by all echelons of the four occupying powers. In mid-1946, however, when the worst of these physical crises had passed and the revival of some sort of self-government for the German people became the dominant issue, cracks began to appear in this heretofore smooth facade of four-power unity, as it always does. General Lucius D. Clay, then the United States military governor for Germany, led the Western Bloc in demanding the revival of economic unity to allow the German nation to support itself once more. Marshal Sokolowski, Soviet military governor for Germany, was equally adamant in his determination that no German Union, which could not be controlled by the Soviet-sponsored Socialist Unity Party, or SED, would be allowed to develop, at least in the Soviet areas of responsibility. Sounds about right. When the 1947 Moscow Council of Foreign Ministers failed to resolve this basic issue, the Allied Control Council lost all but the form of a unified four-power governing body. Although much necessary and effective work continued to be accomplished by the Allied Control Authority, technical divisions, control council meetings degenerated into a sounding board for Soviet propaganda. Following the announcement of the Marshall Plan in June 1947, the Vituperation reached new heights since the Soviets realized that European economic recovery would seriously impair the expansion of communism. Following the failure of the London Council of Foreign Ministers late in November 1947, the Control Council continued its periodic meetings up to March 20, 1948. On this date, after a violent denunciation of the West in general and the United States in, in particular, Marshal Sokovlowski and his delegation walked out, never to return for a formal meeting of the Control Council. Control Council facilities were used by the generals Clay, Robertson, Knig, and Marshal Sokovlowski when they met in August 1948 in an attempt to solve the difficulties which sustained the Berlin blockade. At this time, however, they talked to separate military governors and not as a Control Council. On June 16, 1948, Major General Kotakov Soviet commandant of Berlin staged a similar walkout of the Allied Kommandatura, also enduring four-power government in Berlin. This marked the end of the last four-power policy marking, making body in Germany. General Clay, when he was United States military governor, said on repeated occasions that the door was always open to the Soviets to re-enter the ACC. Subsequently, all United States Berlin commanders have likewise said frequently that the Russians were always welcome to return to the Allied Commandatura of Berlin. They have been supported in that view by their British and French colleagues. None of the commander commandants have changed their views in this respect. Harrison Youngren, United States Army Public Information Office, Berlin Military Post. So, at the time that this was written, they were still 
telling Russia that they could come uh, join them. So that, that's actually a pretty interesting piece of history, I think. Um, in all my studies of World War II, I, I hadn't really seen that. Well, I glossed over it, probably. Uh, in the, you know, because it seemed less interesting, probably, in my mind at, at the time, not now. Okay, so number four, we are back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909, and it's Aaliyah, and we have two Aaliyahs, so the fourth entry is Aaliyah, a river in France, a tributary of the Loire, has its source in the watershed of the east of the department of Lozier, flows north through Hot Loire, Pou de Dome, and Aaliyah, and after a course of more than 200 miles, falls into the Loire below the town of Nevers. It is navigable for a considerable portion of its length. And this is where the encyclopedia gets really faded for a little bit. Um, there are some pages that are just super, super faded. So if I struggle, um, it's because I'm having a hard time <laughs> seeing these faded words. Okay, so we have Aaliyah again. And this time it's a department in the center of France, 2,810 square miles. It is a hilly district, especially in the spring, I'm sorry, especially in the south, sloping down toward the river Lure in the north and is partly woody, but generally well cultivated, producing the usual kinds of grain with wine and oil. It is also rich in minerals, especially iron, coal, antimony, manganese, and marble. There is some manufacturing industry in cotton, wool, linen, carpets, pottery, and glass, but the majority of the population is engaged in agriculture. Mineral springs are found at Vichy, Neris, and Bourbon La Archambault. The chief town is Mol Molins. Other important places are Montleon, La Police, Gnat, at Chantel La Chateau, Chateau are the extensive ruins of King Pepin's castle. The population in 1891 was 424,382. And with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. Our next set of five words are allegation, alligator, alligator apple, alligator fish, and alligator gar. And for all five of those entries, we are going to be strictly in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. So let's go ahead and start with number six, allegation. And it's not what I thought it was. Uh, it's a noun. A rule in arithmetic for finding the value of price of any mixture. It is used for solving such questions as the following. Three pounds of sugar at six cents are mixed with five pounds at ten cents. What is the price of a pound of the mixture? Or in what proportion must sugar at six cents be mixed with sugar at ten cents to produce a mixture at eight and a half cents? The solution of the first is... 3 times 6 plus 5 times 10 over 3 plus 5 equals 8.5 cents. In the second, the proportional number for one ingredient is the difference between the price of the other and that of the mixture. The number for the cheap sugar is therefore 1.5 and, and for the, the dear, 2.5, which are as 3 to 5, so that there must be 3 pounds at 6 cents for every 5 pounds at 10 cents. If there are more than two ingredients, the problem becomes intermediate minute, that is, it admits a variety of answers. Thus, of three metals, whose specific gravities are 10, 15, and 16, it is required to compose an alloy 
whose specific gravity shall be 14. The conditions will be answered by mixing them in any of the following proportions, 1 to 1, 2 to 3, 6 to 11, etc. So that, I had no idea <laughs> it was about math whenever I first saw alligations. So there you go. And number seven, alligator. Um, my nephews really like this, this one. Alligator, noun, a genus of saurian reptiles of the family of the crocodilia and still regarded by some naturalists as a mere subgenus of crocodilus, although it has recently been proposed to constitute a family or subfamily of alligatoridae and to divide it into the genera jacora, alligator, and caiman. The alligators differ from the true crocodiles in the shorter and flatter head, the existence of cavities or pits in the upper jaw, into which and not into mere notches between the teeth as in the crocodiles, the long fourth teeth of the underjaw are received and the much less webbed feet, in consequence of the different manner in which provision is made in the upper jaw for the reception of the longest teeth of the lower, the head of the alligators is broader and the snout more obtuse than the crocodiles. Their habits are less perfectly aquatic, they frequent swamps and marshes, they may be seen basking on the dry ground during the day, in the heat of the sun. They are most native during the night. Oh, I'm sorry, that's active, not native. <laughs> I was like, that doesn't make any sense. They are most active during the night, and they make a loud bellowing. They have great strength in their tails, with which the larger ones can easily upset a light canoe. They feed chiefly on fish, but do not object to other animal food. The females lay their eggs 20 to 60 in number in the mud and leave them to be hatched by the heat of the sun, but keep watch over the spot and show much affection for their young ones, many of which, however, fall a, a prey to the old males and to vultures and fishes. There are several species varying from 2 to 20 feet and upwards in length. Perhaps the most fierce and dangerous is that found in the southern parts of the United States as far up the Mississippi as the Red River, A. Lucius. Oh, that sounds scary, actually. The snout is a little turned up, and its resemblance to the, that of a pike has led to the specific name Lucius. In cold weather, these animals bury themselves in the mud and become so torpid that they may be cut to pieces without showing signs of sensibility, but a few hours of bright sunshine are enough to revive them. Like the other species, they are so protected by their meld plates that they are not easily killed, except by a shot or blow over the eyes. A very strong kind of leather is prepared from the skin, which is used for making saddles. It is said that a considerable quantity of oil can be extracted from an alligator, which is transparent and burns well. The alligators of South America are there very often called caimans, probably an Indian name, and some of them bear the name of yakori, particularly alligator sclerops, also distinguished as the spectacled caiman on account of prominent bony rims surrounding the orbit of each eye. This species appear to be widely distributed over tropical America and attains a great size. Alligators are not known to exist in any quarter of the world except America, in which, however, true crocodiles are also found. But among the fossils of the south of England are remains of a true alligator in the hortal beds. The flesh of alligators is eaten by Indians and... Uh, and it has a musky flavor. The name is supposed to be a corruption of the Portuguese lagarto lizard. Cuvier adopted it as a scientific name. Okay. And before we get to uh, 
number eight, I just wanted to uh, remind everyone that taxes, taxes are coming up. I believe they are new in April, which is coming pretty fast. I know some people have already done their taxes. Uh, others haven't. Uh, others, like some of my family members that I know, uh, do it very last minute. I mean, like so last minute, I cringe. I'm like, I, I don't know. Well, I did mine a different way. Usually mine are done almost immediately, but uh, I decided to do it a different way. And so my one of my stories has to do with two. There are two different stories, but they're one. Um, so as I was preparing my taxes to take over to, to someone new that I'm going to try to use, I hope it works out, um, the lights went out the night before I was... I had a notebook. I was get, gathering everything. I was so proud of myself. I even got off work a little bit early um, just so I could finish it. And the lights went out. But I had to get it done. I didn't want to stay up till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and then try to drive to an area I didn't, I wasn't familiar with the next morning pretty early. So I really, really needed it done. So by lamplight and by the last bit of my laptop battery I worked on those taxes until the lights came back on uh, but the lights went out in my entire area my grandfather uh, even came up to check up to check on me and to, and to let me know he was okay because I was trying to call him on his cell phone and turns out I am the only one who had a cell phone that worked so yay go mint mobile they are not paying me to say this but I have to say mint mobile you really did me good whenever the power went out because uh, no one else could use their cell phone. So, uh, so that's my adventure. I, I uh, used a lamplight to... I tried using a flashlight. My flashlight went out. Um, but lamplight, yeah, yeah, it worked. It worked. So the, the laptop light also worked. Uh, you know you know how the computers have the lights in your faces and stuff. So it was it was quite a weird, a weird thing to do. But... Uh, I got it done, and I'm so glad I did. So, uh, if you have any adventures of uh, taxes or anything, that's that's my adventure of taxes. I'm not gonna forget for a while, um, simply because of the lamp. But if you have any adventures that you want to share, feel free to share them. Uh, you can email me at mandyoaks at protonmail.com or go to my website theoaktreejourneys.com. It's like contact and, and let me know about your your adventures. It doesn't even have to be a tax adventure. I, I do have another adventure I'll tell you about that has nothing to do with boring old taxes. And it is boring and tedious. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad the lamplight made it fun. And uh, let's, uh, without without going into more, more stories right away, uh, let's go to entry number eight, alligator apple. And all it says is <laughs> see custard apple. So we don't know what alligator apple is until we get to custard apple. Um, so I'm kind of wondering if it's some sort of custard or pie with alligator. I don't, I don't know. We'll find out when we get to the seas. And entry number nine is alligator fish. So alligator fish, and it says, Toloist fish family Aganade, armed with bony plates, 20 small species, chiefly Arctic. One occurs south to Cape Cod. And that's all they have to say about alligator fish. And entry number 10, alligator gar. And all it says is ganoid fish 10 feet long, 
I think that's Illinois to Cuba, see Ganoid. So we would have to see Ganoid on that one. And uh, let's go to break. And welcome back. Our next five entries are Alligator D, Alligator Lizard, Alligator Pear or Avocado Pear, Alligator Turtle, and then Allingham, comma, William. So we break up the alligators with a name. And number 11, Alligator... I, I think I'm... Okay, so Alligator D. And it's a family of Saurians, order Crocodilia, often classed as a subfamily of Crocodilidae. The distinction between the two families is drawn as follows by Professor Huxley. That sounds like a, a name from a movie or something. Alligator D have short, have heads short and broad, teeth very unequal, the first and fourth of the underjaw biting into pits in the upper jaw. That sounds painful, actually. Promoxylo maxillary su suture straight or convex forward. Mandibular, mandibular, yeah, okay, that word. <laughs> Symphysis not extending beyond the fifth tooth. The splenial element not entering it, cervical scutes dis distinct from the turgle. In the crocodilae, the head is longer, teeth unequal, first mandibular tooth biting into a fossae, the fourth into a groove at the side of the at the upper jaw, pre-moxillary suture straight or convex backward, mandibular. Symphysis not extending beyond eighth tooth and not involving the splenial elements of living alligator day, all are confined to America. Till lately, it was supposed that no crocodilidae were to be found in the New World, but a species of crocodile, Crocodilus americanus, has been discovered in Florida. Of course, Florida. <laughs> Florida brings us the alligators and crocodiles. Yay! Okay. Entry number 12 is from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956, and this is Alligator Lizard. And it's any lizard of the genus Gerhonitus of the family Anguinidae, characterized by combining well-developed limbs and a longitudinal fold of granules along each side between the rectangular bony scales of the dorsal and ventral surfaces. They range from British Columbia south to Panama, and five species have been recorded from the United States. One species reaches a length of eight inches, not counting the tail, which is nearly twice this length. Others are smaller, about four and a half inches exclusive of tail. All are principally insectivorous, so they eat insects. That's pretty neat. There's no picture. I was looking for a drawing, and they don't have any type of drawing for it, unfortunately. That'd be really neat to see. But you can look it up online uh, when you're not driving, if you're listening to this while you're driving. Okay, and number 13, alligator pear or avocado pear, a tree. So this is a tree. I, I was hoping it would be some sort of food, but it's a tree. Persia gratissima of the natural order Lorachia, indigenous to the subtropical and tropical America, and widely cultivated in warm countries for its more or less pear-shaped purple or green-skinned fruits, each of which contains a single seed embedded in a yellowish-green edible marrow-like pulp. It is rich in oil, which may be used in soap-making and in lighting. 
The seeds yield a black dye. Seedlings are easily raised and begin to bear in about five years if planted in good soil in warm places. Oh, that sounds good, actually. I'm, I'm hungry. So anytime there's going to be food involved, uh, whether it's fruit or pies or anything, I'm, I'm, I'm hungry, so it's going to churn my stomach there. Number 14, alligator turtle. One of the names of the snapping turtle, also the familiar name of Macrochelis lacertina, another freshwater turtle, an American species found from the Gulf of Mexico north to Wisconsin, esteemed for food. Ah, oh, man. <laughs> I don't think I've ever eaten turtles. Um, I've had alligator, and those are really, really good. Whenever they're fixed right, they are delicious. Um, <laughs> I don't think I've had turtle. Uh, specimens often weigh 60 pounds. Wow huge there. I've picked up a giant turtle that was in the middle of the road. I don't know if it was a turtle. I, I don't know if we classify it as a turtle, but but it was a turtle-like thing, and uh, I had to try to lift it out of the road because the road was super, super narrow, and that would have caused a horrible accident. And that sucker was heavy. It was more than 60 pounds, it may have been a tortoise. Uh, I, don't, I don't know the difference between turtle and tortoise, which is, you know, encyclopedia will help me there. Uh, when we get to the T's, uh, or if you want to tell me, or if you want that to be a bonus, let me know. Um, but yeah, it was huge. Uh, and I had to kind of do this little waddle walk to <laughs> try to get it out of the room. That was when I was working out on a regular basis. And a woman saw me, uh, she was coming the opposite direction, and she had to stop, too. And she was like, oh, thank you so much. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I know. We both would have crashed into one another had it stayed. <laughs> so, the best case scenario, that, that's what would have happened. But, yeah, so, uh, they can get heavy. Uh, I, again, I don't know if it's a turtle or a tortoise, but it was heavy. Heavy, heavy, heavy. And that's back when I could lift hundred pounds, I believe. No, no, 90. I was up to 90, not a hundred. I wasn't quite up to a hundred yet, but 90 pounds, um, in deadlifts. And this was a, this was a deadlift. So it was, it was, uh, it weighed more than 90 pounds. I can't do that now. Uh, and probably fall over, but let's move on. Um, okay. Our last entry before break is Allingham, comma, William. And that's entry number 15. So William Allingham actually should not be our 15th entry. It should be Helen Allingham. That is not good. Let me fix that real quick. And that's going to change a few things. All right, I'm just noting this really fast to, uh, to fix that. That's why I was so confused. I was like, wait a minute. Okay, so this is actually Helen Allingham Patterson. Not, not William. We're not to William yet. We will be William after break. Okay. All right, now we'll fix that during break. All right, so we have Helen Allingham Patterson, who is an English artist born 1848, September 26th. She received her art education in the Royal Academy Schools and married the Irish poet William Allingham. So that'll be, he'll be next. We'll hear about him next in 1874. 
She has drawn much in black and white for the graphic and other periodicals, and her work as an illustrator has been much admired. She has written Happy England in 1903 and The House of Tennyson in 1905. So it doesn't look like... Okay, so she was still alive uh, whenever the new Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 was written. So that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Okay, so we're going to go to break, and when we come back from break, my notes will be fixed. Everything will be fixed online, um, and then we will learn about her husband. So... <laughs> So we'll go out to break and, and you'll get to know about her husband. And welcome back. Yeah, I've got it fixed on my notes, um, but as far as my laptop, my laptop pooped out on me. I had said it had zero battery left. So it's plugged in right now and as soon as it gets charged up enough, I will fix my notes on there as well. Okay, so our next five entries are Allingham, William, Allison, Allison, Fred, Allison, William B., and All is True. And for entry number 16, let's find out about Helen's husband, shall we? William Allingham, Irish poet. He was born in Ballyshannon, Ireland, 1824, March 19th. He died in Hampstead. Okay, so she was still alive, but he wasn't whenever this was uh, written. So he died in Hamp Hampstead, 1889, November 18th. From, but from 1846 to his retirement in 1870, he held various posts in the Irish Customs Service. He was sub-editor of Fraser's Magazine from 1870 to 1874 when he succeeded James Anthony Fraud, or, okay, I don't know, <laughs> uh, as editor and conducted it with ability until 1879. At its best, Allingham's poetry is excellent, being simple, clear, and graceful, and whether pathetic, sportive, or descriptive is always characterized by delicate artistic expression. His best work is in the volume called Day and Night Songs in 1854, Lawrence Bloomfield in Ireland in 1864, a long poem which has been called the Epic of Irish Philanthropic Landlordsman, Landlordism, has a wealth of fine description, description, but was not a public success. Other volumes are Poems in 1850, The Ballad Book in 1864, Songs, Ballads, and Stories in 1877, Collected po Poetical Works, six volumes, 1888 to 1893. So that's a little bit about her husband. It didn't really say anything about him marrying her, did it? <laughs> but I guess they figured, uh, they can figure that out by reading about Helen first. But if you didn't read Helen first, then you never would have known she was married to William. Okay, so entry number 17 is Allison. And it's a noun. A striking or dashing against with violence. And um, Okay, the reason I pronounced that wrong is because I've got it spelled wrong on my notes. And I'm like, Allison, that doesn't sound like something, yeah, something like that. And so, forgive me, I spelled it wrong, so I pronounced it wrong. It is actually allergian, allergian, allergian. So it's a striking or dashing against with violence, and it's a noun. So allergian, and I am going to fix that on my notes, too. And entry number 18 
Um, we are going to go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And I'm just trying to take a quick look at my notes to make sure that that's right. And we have Allison, Fred, or Fred Allison, who was an American physicist born Glade Spring, Virginia, July 4th, 1882. He graduated from Emory and Henry College, Emory, Virginia, in 1904. Oh, I know some people who, who went there. He was professor of physics at Emory and Henry College from 1908 to 1920, instructor at the University of Virginia from 1920 to 1922, and has been head professor at Alabama Polytechnic Institute since 1922. The magneto-optic method of analysis was developed by him, and by this method, he and his co-workers discovered elements 87 in 1930 and 85 in 1931. Well, I would love to know what those elements are, you know, but they're 87 and 85. <laughs> And let's go back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 for our next entry, which is Allison, William B., or William B. Allison. And this time it is Allison. And he was a lawyer and statesman born Perry, Oregon, 1829, March 2nd, of Irish ancestry. He received the ordinary school education supplemented by tuition at Algany College, Meadville, Pennsylvania, and then entered Western Reserve College, Hudson, Oregon, and on his graduation, uh, I'm sorry, Ohio. That's Ohio, not Oregon. So he was born Perry, Ohio, and then he entered Western Reserve College in Hudson, Ohio. I, I even have a note that says Ohio. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. And on his graduation studied law. Being admitted to the bar, he entered upon a professional career in his native state of Ohio in 1852, but in 1857 removed to Dumbach, Iowa. An ardent Republican and a trusted local political leader, he was sent as a delegate to the Republican National Convention in Chicago in 1860, which nominated Lincoln. In the early part of the Civil War, he served on the governor's staff and was actively engaged in raising troops for the Union Army. In 1863, he was elected to Congress and served by successive re-elections till 1869. On 1873, March 4th, he was elected to the United States Senate and has been five times re-elected in 1878, 1884, 1890, 1896, and 1902. His 30 years of service making him one of the oldest as he has always been among the most influential leaders. He has served on many important committees and as chairman of the Finance Committee in 1878 was the chief officer author of the bill that committee reported for the purchase of silver bullion, usually known for the Bland-Allison Act, for the purchase of silver bullion, a compromise from the free coinage bill of Congressman Bland. He has repeatedly been a strong candidate in Republican national conventions for the presidency and was offered the secretaryship of treasury by both Garfield and Harrison. In 1892, he was a representative of the United States at the Brussels Monetary Conference. There we go. And number 20 is All is True. And this is a play, and we are in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909, a play attributed by to, or to Shakespeare, The Burning of the Globe Theater, 1613, March 29th, while the piece was being played, destroyed the manuscript. Wow. Parts of the drama were incorporated into the play of Henry VIII. So, wow. The manuscript was, was burned during the 1613 fire. Wow. Okay. On that note, let's uh, go to break. And, and before I say that, I, I hope no one else was hurt 
and that I don't know anything about the burning of the Globe Theater, at least not recently. I could have known something about it maybe in high school, but I, I hope no one was hurt. Anyway, let's go ahead and go to break. And welcome back. Our next set of five entries are alliterate, alliteration, Aleum, Al Almers, comma, Herman, Ludwig, Aloha. And uh, I love alliteration, but before we, we get into alliteration, I just want to tell you a quick story about playing with my dog. Uh, we were running around, running around. It got really, really cold, so I was wearing some long pants, some really thick pants uh, that I usually run in in the cold weather. Or, or hike in, and uh, I decided to slide across the kitchen floor. Now, I usually do this in socks. I usually don't go to my knees and slide across the kitchen floor anymore like a, like a kid, but this time I was just like, you know, I'm going to do it. You know, she, I threw her toy, and she ran, and she slid into her toy and grabbed it, so I slid into the floor to try to grab her, and... Uh, yeah, my pants stuck to the floor. I'm uh, not sure what was sticking there because my floor had just recently been mopped by my nephew. Thank you for mopping my floor. My pants stuck. My knee kept going and pain shot through my knee. Um, when I pulled up my pant leg, it looked like I had a really good carpet burn on my knee. And it still smarts a little bit. Um, but my dog thought I was just hilarious and, and she just like, you know, threw her little skunk up in the air and was trying, was teasing me with it while I was trying to, uh, not scream in pain. You know, it wasn't a big, deep pain, but it was just sharp enough to, to hurt. <laughs> but then, you know, I eventually got up and started playing with her again. I tried to give her at least, and I'm not even counting the outside time, but I tried to give her at least very minimal, uh, 15 minutes, uh, I'll try to go for longer, but at least 15 minutes without me looking at any screens. So my phone's put away, no TVs are on, laptop is turned off. I try to give her my full undivided attention for at least 15 minutes of playtime, usually at night, um, before bed and after work, uh, just to kind of get her to, to wind down a little bit. And, and I'm not, not even including, uh, the, the outside time we do. We, we run around outside too, but we start running around in the living room right after that happened. And we went faster and faster and faster. And she was teasing me with her skunk and running. And I, I cannot catch her. She's a little pistol. Uh, she just runs and runs and runs. She's, well, I shouldn't say pistol. She's a bullet. <laughs> just flies. And, uh, but, but I just tease her. I make really weird noises and I'm like, ah, you know, egg her on. So I was going faster. She was going faster. And we're just having a great time, swinging my arms, uh, and boom, my same leg pops right into the chair. And oh, I got down. <laughs> it hurt, my my foot swelled up just a little bit. Uh, thankfully, it wasn't the same foot that I that the tendon snapped in over over the summer a few months ago, but but yeah, it was it was not uh, not pleasant. And when I put my shoes on this morning to go out, it it pain it was a little bit pain here and there, but it was all right. It, it's fine now. Um, a little stiff, but but fine now. But but yeah, it was just a uh, interesting an interesting thing to happen. So so let me move on. Uh, you don't want to hear about 
about what I do during the day. Let's, let's move on to entry number 21, which is alliterate. And that is a verb, which is pretty cool. And it's to begin two or more consecutive words with the same letter or with the same or nearly the same sound. Instead of the speaker or writer as well as of the alliterating words themselves. A literal adverb pertaining to the practice of beginning two or more words in succession with the same letter. Now we're getting ready to read about alliteration, which is a noun. Uh, before we do, I'll tell you just a really quick story about an author named Stephen James. He's a local here. And uh, he came to speak at our class in college. Uh, it was our writing class. And he said he always tries to take out any words, uh, any literary, alliterating words, any alliterations in, in his uh, work, and anything that, that's kind of poetic. Because uh, he's not writing poetry. He's not writing flowery speech. He, he's writing succinctly. He wants you to to get into that plot and be sucked into the plot and not his and not flowery words. So I thought that was really interesting how he does that because every now and then I like to throw in something flowery. Um, and I do think about him whenever he, he said that. And so it does make me stop and I'm like, do I really need these words in here? Do I really need this flowery speech? Who, you know, what, what is the purpose of that? Does it go along with the story? So he really got me thinking because I do sometimes enjoy flowery words and uh, alliterations, but will it help or hinder my, my work? So I just wanted to add that in there because uh, that's what he t talked about when he uh, talked to us. So, okay. So let's move on to entry number 22, which is alliteration. Noun, the frequent repetition of a letter, usually an initial or sound in successive words, generally in poetry. So see, he's not, he was, he's not writing poetry. Um, alliterative adverb pertaining to in Old German, Anglo-Saxon, and Scandinavian poetry. Alliteration took the place of rhyme. Oh, that's interesting, actually. This kind of verse in its strict form required that in the two short lines forming a couplet, three words should begin with the same letter, two in the first line, or hemistitch, and one in the second, as in the following couplet in Anglo-Saxon poetry. Theorem Folden Freya Amentig Cademan. Alliteration has not quite disappeared from Icelandic poetry to this day. Alliterative poems continue to be written in English after it had assumed its modern form. The most remarkable is Pierce Plowman, a poem of the 14th century of which the following is a specimen, the two hemistitches being written in one line. Mercy height that made a meek thing withal, a full benign bird, and booksome of speech. Even after the introduction of rhyme, alliteration continued to be largely used as an embellishment of poetry and is so, though to a less extent, to this day. The fair breeze blew, the white foam flew, the furrow followed free by Coleridge. Besides the Gothic, there are other nations widely separated from each other among whom the essential distinction of verse is alliteration. The Finns, for instance, and the Tamils in the south of India. But alliteration is not confined to verse. The charm that lies in it exercises great influence on human speech generally, as may be seen in many current phrases and proverbs in all languages. Example, life and limb, house and home, wide wares, tight tears, etc. It, is often, it often constitutes part of the point in pignancy of witty writing. See, they used alliteration. This application of alliteration is fallaciously... <laughs> 
exemplified by Sidney Smith when contrasting the conditions of a dignitary of the English church and a poor curate. He speaks of them as the right reverend dives in the palace and Lazarus in orders at the gate, doctored by dogs and comforted with crumbs. Say that ten times fast. In the early part of the 17th century, the fashion of hunting after alliterations was carried to an absurd excess. Even from the pulpit, the chosen people of God were addressed as the chickens of the church, the sparrows of the spirit, and the sweet swallows of salvation. Wow, I don't think I like being called that. I don't think I like being called a chicken of the church. Um, yeah, that's weird. In New Year gift or address presented to Mary Queen of Scots by the poet Alexander Scott concludes with a stanza running thus. Fresh, fulgent, florist, fragrant, fragrant flower, foremost, lantern to love of ladies' lamp and lot, cherry maced chase, chief carbuncle and chose, etc., in the following piece of elaborate trifling given, but without naming the author in H. Southgate's Many Thoughts on Many Things, alliteration is combined with acrosticism. So th this goes through the entire uh, alphabet. Ready? A. In an Austrian army awfully arrayed, boldly by battery besieged Belgrade, Cossack commanders cannonading come, dealing destruction's devastating doom, Every endeavor engineer's essay for fame, for fortune, forming furious fray. Gaunt gunner's grapple, giving gashes good, heaves high his head, heroic hardihood. Ibrahim, Islam, Ishmael, imps, and ill. Jostle, John, Jerviz, Jim, Joe, Jack, Jill. Kick, kindling, Kustoff, king's kinsman, kill. Labor, low levels, loftiest, longest lines, mid. Men march mid moles, mid mounds, mid murderous mines. Now night falls near, now needful nature nods. Opposed, opposing, overcoming odds. Poor peasants, partly purchased, partly pressed. Quite quaking, quarter, quarter, quickly quest. Reason returns, recalls redundant rage. Save sinking, soldiers softens, singular sage. Truce, turkey, truce, truce, treacherous tartar train. Unwise, unjust, and merciful Ukraine. Banish vile vengeance, vanish victory vain. Wisdom wells war, wells warring words. What were Xerxes, Xantipane, Ximenes, Xavier? Yet Yassi's youth, ye yield your youthful yes. Zealously zany, zealously zeal's zest. That was fun. <laughs> but there you go. There's alliteration. <laughs> okay, and entry number 23 is Aleum. And that is a genus of plants of the natural order Lilicia, containing a large number of species, perennial, more rarely biennial, herbaceous plants, more or less decidedly bulbous-rooted, natives chiefly of the temperate and colder regions of the northern hemisphere. The flowers are umbellate, enclosed in a spathe, and the umbel often bears also small bulbs with its flowers. The perianth is of six spreading pieces resembling petals, having the stamens inserted in their base. The fruit is a triangular capsule, and the seeds are angular. The leaves are generally narrow, although in some species, as A. ursinum, they are rather broad, and in a considerable number, they are rounded and fistulose. Garlic, onion, leek, shallot, chive, and rockambole are species of this genus in common cultivation. The first four are cultivated in the gardens of India, as well as of Europe, 
with A. terbisum and the hill people of India eat the bulbs of A. leptophyllum and dry the leaves and preserve them as a condiment. Oh, that's cool. Six native species occur in East North America, the wild leek, leaves dying before flowers develop, West New England, West and Algonese, wild onion, scape angular and by drooping, West New York, West and South, a stellatum, similar but scape round, leaves flat, West and Northwest, wild garlic, leaves linear and flattish, a stratium, leaves straight and on the back, South and West, chives, leaves all shaped, hollow, Great Lakes and North, also Europe, and filled garlic, round hollow leaves, channeled above, an important troublesome perennial to be extirpated only by rooting out the bulbs per perseveringly when the leaves begin to appear in spring. That might be why I keep smelling onions. Every time I uh, walk to a certain part of my yard, I'm like, I breathe in really deep. I'm like, ooh, I smell onions. So there must be wild onions growing somewhere around my area. Okay, and for entry number 24, uh, that's Almers, Herman Ludwig. We go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. Let me make sure I've got the right page. Ah, here he is. Hermann Ludwig Almers. He was a German poet and author born Rechenfleth near Bremen, Germany, February 11th, 1821. He died there March 9th of 1902. His Martian book in 1858, 6th edi edition, 1917, and Romish Schlinderdart. English Idle Days in Rome, 1868, 11th edition, 1904, were widely read for their lively causeries and descriptive passages. Other works are Electro, a Drama, 1872, and Captain Bose, 1882. His collected works were published in six volumes, Oldenburg, 1891 to 1895. And it says Consult Siebes, T.H. Herman Almers, Bremen, 1915. Okay, and let's go back to... The New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And entry number 25 is Aloha. And that is a seaport town in Clackmanshire, Scotland. It's situated on the left bank of the Forth, where the river widens into its estuary seven miles by road below Stirling. Population is about 12,000. It is a town of considerable antiquity and is an active center of trade and manufacturers. The principal articles manufactured are whiskey and ale, the latter of which is highly esteemed. There are extensive glass, iron, and brick works and shipbuilding yards. Copper utensils, shawls and blankets, leather, tobacco, and stuff. Or sn uh, not stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, that is stuff. But snuff are manufactured and much coal is regularly exported from the pits in the immediate neighborhood of the town. Coal is a chief item in the coasting trade. Besides which, there is a considerable foreign trade. More than 1,000 vessels enter the port yearly, representing a tonnage of 150,000 tons. The harbor is good, with 16 feet of water at, I think, Neep. Uh, some of the letters are kind of scraped out, so we'll just say Neep. And 22 at spring tides. It is furnished with a dry dock. There is a steam ferry across the Forth, connecting by a short junction line with the Scottish Central Railway. It is also connected with that line and with the Edinburgh and Northern Railway by the Stirling and Dunfermline branch. There is regular steam communication by the river with Edinburgh and Stirling. 
And the neighborhood is Aloha Tower, 89 feet high, supposed to have been built in the not okay, the 13th century. Once the red residents of the Erskines and at different times of Scottish princes. And with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. Our next set of five entries are Allobroges, Allocate, Allocruit, Allocution, and Allodium. And Allobroges is from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. I thought this was really interesting. Uh, so Allobroges, the name of a Celtic people who lived in ancient Gallia, Narbonnesis, and occupied the country below Lake Geneva and between the Rhone and the Assir, now included in the French regions of Savoy and Dauphine. They long struggled against the Romans, but were subjugated by Quintus Fabius Maximus in 121 BC. After a last rebellion in 61 BC, they became under Caesar loyal to Rome. The principal towns of the Albroges were Vienna, Geneva, and Caloro, or Grenoble. Okay, so I just thought that was pretty cool. And for entries 27, 28, 29, and 30, we go back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. Okay, and it is allocate, which is entry number 27. That is a verb, and it's to place to, to give each one his share or part, to set apart for any purpose, to distribute. Allocating, allocated, allocation, noun, the act of setting apart for, the assigning a place for. Allocator, noun, in law, a word indicating the amount allowed in the taxation of a bill of costs by the proper officer of court. Synonym of allocate, to allot, assign, appoint, distribute, destine, apportion. So I do like that word. And number 28, alacroit, noun, a fine-grained, massive variety of iron garnet exhibiting a variety of colors when melted with phosphate of soda before the blowpipe. And before we uh, go to entry number 29, uh, just a quick reminder, uh, I mentioned allocate is a really cool word. Well, I didn't say cool word, but it's a neat word that I like. So we like a lot of words here, um, but what about words that you don't like? Um, such as, I know, uh, How I Met Your Mother pushes moist, and I believe I've seen other sitcoms push the word moist as a word that you shouldn't like. Uh, I don't like the word hangry, and I'll tell you why later. Um, so what what words do you not like that you just just either cringe or you just wish they were not added into the dictionary or into people's vernacular. Um, and let's keep it, let's, let's keep it PG rated, maybe PG 13 rated. Uh, so yeah, if I get enough, uh, enough words and examples, let me know why you don't like the word uh, because it's not enough to just send me a word and you don't tell me why you don't like it. That's, that's no fun. <laughs> tell me why you don't like it. Uh, but if I get enough, I'll make a bonus. I'll make a bonus uh, podcast about words we do not like and why. Why don't we like it? And we'll go over uh, what they mean uh, and uh, or what they used to mean, uh, what they mean now, and, and why you don't like it. And, and I just think that would be a lot of fun. Um, you know, I just, I think it would. I, and I hope you do too. So yeah, let me know. 
Uh, you can email me your word and why you don't like it at mandyoaks at protonmail.com or you can go to my website, theoaktreejourneys.com and go to my contact and just uh, fill out that contact form and I'll get it either way. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm really curious as to what words you like and don't like. Uh, well, in this case, words you don't like. <laughs> um, because we go over words that uh, we've, we've had podcasts, bonuses, uh, and you can check out those bonuses. Uh, go to my bonus section of theoaktreejourneys.com and you can look at some of these bonuses. You'll see some words, uh, a bonus that was dedicated to words that were curious, people were curious about. Um, and, and liked and were just really interesting uh, or had misunderstandings about. And it could be that the word you don't like is just a misunderstanding. So let, let's uh, check that out. I'm really curious about it, about what words you don't like. Okay, so let's move on to entry number 29, which is allocution, allocution noun, a formal address written or spoken, especially the address delivered by the Pope at the College of Cardinals, on any ecclesiastical or political circumstance. It corresponds in some measure to the official explanations which constitutional ministers give when questions are asked in Parliament or to the political messages of an emperor. The Roman see, Mark, uh, the Roman see makes abundant use of this method of address. And that's S-E-E. -E. Uh, when it desires to guard a principle which is which it is compelled to give up in a particular case or to reserve a claim for the future which has no chance of recognition in the present. Well, that's, that's actually pretty neat. And number 30. Aladium, noun. Land held without a superior. Oh, wait, let's see here. Oh, it's Middle Latin aladilius from... Aladium, land held without, without a superior. And then Danish Odell, a patrimonial estate. Iceland, Odal, a homestead, goods abandoned. Okay. So that's just the, the first little part to say where these parts came from. Okay. So Aladium is land held in absolute possession without a feudal superior. Unconditional free tenure. Aladil, free of rent independent. Aladil tenure in law is the free and absolute right of property and land independent of any burden of homage or fidelity to a superior. When the principal landholders of England submitted to the yoke of military tenure and surrendered their lands into the hands of the conqueror at the Council of Sarum, fidelity in the previous existence or non-existence of which has been a subject of much discussion was formally recognized and it henceforth became a fundamental maxim in the law of real property that, quote, the king is the universal lord and original proprietor of all the lands in his kingdom, and that no man doth or can possess any part of it, but what has mediately or immediately been derived as a gift from him to be held upon feudal services, end quote. And that's from Blackstone, volume 2, page 51, Kerr's edition. I don't like that. <laughs> um, don't like that at all. But let, let's continue on. This maxim, though, as Blackstone remarks... It was even at first little more than a fiction, was not peculiar to England, but prevailed wherever the feudal system obtained, and still forms what may be called the starting point in all feudal tenures of land. Even where subinfeudations have prevailed to the greatest extent, every title is traceable in the last instance to the paramount and universal superiority of the crown, see feudal system. 
The surrender of lands in England being the result of political measures was one of universal national act, and consequently, Aladiel tenures at once ceased to exist, but in many other countries it was accomplished by private arrangements between the Aladiel proprieties and the prince, the former being anxious to exchange their nominal, nominal independence for the greater security enjoyed by the vassals of the sovereign, the latter being willing to receive them as dependents for the sake either of their personal services in war or latterly, for the equivalence of these services in money or the produce of the lands. In such countries, fidelity, though general, was not universal, and Aladiel tenures consequently continued together with those originating with the crown. The only examples of Aladiel tenures extant in Great Britain are the Udall rights in the islands of Orkney and Shetland, formerly Danish. In Scotland, all property and superiorities belonging to the crown itself and all churches, churchyard manses, and glebes, the right to which does not flow from the crown, are regarded as aladeal, and the term in a wider sense, as opposed to feudal generally, is sometimes used with reference to movable property. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's a lot to take in. And with that, that is our last entry of the week and the last entry for February, actually. So we made it through February. It is the shortest, longest month of the year, in my personal and humble opinion. Um, but in honor of spring, uh, I will next month uh, have another percent off for my Teespring store. So I, sometimes I forget to plug that in. I do have a Teespring store. So if you want something and you're like, ah, oh, it's a little too expensive. Well, for the spring, in honor of the spring and Easter's coming up, I am going to have a percent off. So look for that uh, next month. And also don't forget to send me the words that you do not like. And uh, just send them to my email address, mandyoaks at protonmail.com or the, using the contact form of, of my website, theoaktreejourneys.com. And both of those are in the description below. Uh, before I let you go, though, let me just remind you of the quote of the month. This is the last time you are going to hear this quote, unless you go back and listen to previous podcasts. Uh, by Martin Luther, love is an image of God and not a lifeless image, but the living essence of the divine nature, which beams full of all goodness. And with that positive thought, I bid you a blessed week and adieu.